0: This morning to Psalm 40. If you've been with us for a time, you know that our study that we are uh, participating in or we are working through as the book of Hebrews. But if you have been with us for any length of time, you may also know that uh, we began at the, uh, when we resumed worshiping together and were able to come back to the table during COVID, uh, a new pattern where the first Sunday of each month, We focus on the table and we move away from our regular study and then turn our attention to a passage that prepares us to receive God's grace, God's blessing to us when we come to the table. And so our passage this morning uh, comes from Psalm 40 for the very reason, not only to instruct and to shape us, uh, but to prepare us to enjoy God's blessing to us in the Lord's Supper. Psalm 40. Psalm 40. Beginning in verse 1, hear the word of our God. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offerings you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear "'Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. "'Then I said, Behold, I have come. "'In the scroll of the book it is written of me, "'I delight to do your will, O my God. "'Your law is within my heart. "'I have told the glad news of deliverance "'in the great congregation. "'Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O Lord. "'I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart.' I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we read your words, these words, may they become our words. For we are all poor and needy, some very keenly aware Others, not so in tune. Uh, But you, O Lord, are the giver of all good things. You have created us to have fellowship with you, to flourish, and to have great joy. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be at work within us to shape us, to tune our attention to you, so that regardless of what we face in this life, we might experience that fellowship, that joy, that assurance that comes with your deliverance. Lord, shape us by this word that we may see and experience your hand in every aspect of our lives. Knit us together as your body that we may encourage one another, that we may praise your holy name for you are worthy. To you, Lord, we give glory. To you we honor as we turn our attention now to consider your word. May your spirit speak to us, giving us insight, but even more, shaping us to who we are to be that we may honor you. We pray all things in the incomparable name of Christ, our Redeemer King. Amen. On May 17th in 1965, Beatles' Paul McCartney recorded his song yesterday, which is, according to music industry, the most um, covered song in all of history. The song apparently came to him in a dream. He was sleeping, and the tune came to his to mind. And when he awoke, he went to the piano and he played it so that it would be embedded in his, in his, uh, in, in his mind so that he wouldn't forget it. But he had this knowing feeling for uh, several weeks, actually, that he must have heard it somewhere before. So he went to different music recording studios all around the uh, area of, of London where he was then living. asking if they'd ever heard this tune, and each one saying, no, they they had not heard it, they had not heard it. So after about a month, he felt comfortable enough that uh, it was his tune, his original tune, and he began to write the lyrics for it, and then they recorded uh, the song. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, yesterday is the most covered song ever written, with more than 1,600 recorded cover versions, BMI, which is Broadcast Music Incorporated, asserts that it has been performed over 7 million times. It was performed over 7 million times in the 20th century alone. So yesterday is considered to be the most covered song in all of history, and I was just curious, then, what are the other ones? And according to the list from the music industry, the five most covered songs of all time, yesterday is number one. Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones is number two. Imagine by John Lennon is number three, Over the Rainbow by Judy Garland is number four, and What a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong is number five. Now, I don't know if you take exception any of those, and I don't know if you've recorded any of those, or maybe you sing them in karaoke, but these are considered to be the most covered songs in all of history. And I can't debate that. I can't say that that is, is wrong. I, I don't know who makes up these statistics. But I would say that I wonder at the very least, and I suspect that another song should be considered along the most covered. And that would be Psalm 40, written by David, that we considered this morning. So David wrote this as a, a song, as a, a just he was, as you were writing, an expression of his heart. It's poetic, it, but it is a, so, it is a song. And, and the Lord saw that as a song, that it was worthy of being Put into his Psalter, the collection of psalms, which is sometimes known as the Hebrew hymn book. And once you get put in the Hebrew hymn book, it was now open game for everybody to sing it as a cover. Might want to consider that kind of Hebrew hymn book, karaoke. Everybody has an aspect of it. And so now everybody is able to sing it. In fact, some of you may be aware that the Irish band U2 actually covered this song in the early 80s. Apparently, it was not something that was intended they were finishing up one of their early albums and they recognized as the time in the studio was coming to an end that they needed one more song to complete the album one of the band members began pounding out a a tune that he had started writing sometime before but he had shelved but now they were pressed for time and they needed this other tune so he said well what about this one and so as he was playing the tune other band members said it has some potential and they got more and more convinced of it. They refined the song as it had been written. And now they needed some lyrics. Apparently, while he was listening to the song being played out by his bandmates, the lead singer Bono opened his Bible to Psalm 40. And he began to recite and then to sing in line long, long with the tune that was being played. The song was only released as a single in England. Or, I'm sorry, in in Germany. But it has been played at the end of their concerts as a regular practice. In fact, it was throughout the 80s and the 90s, it was the end of their concert always. And they simply titled it 40 because it comes from Psalm 40. It's been covered many, many times in many places, but what I want this morning is for you and for me to embrace this song, that we would cover it, maybe not recording, some of you that would be good, some of us that would be painful, but that would be the song of our hearts as we live out our lives in this world. Because this psalm tells us that this world is filled with challenges and, and difficulties, but that the Lord hears the cries of his children. He invites us and instructs us that we are to wait patiently for him, because his time is not always our time, or our time is not always his time, but the Lord is always good. The Lord is always faithful, and rather than being merely just, the Lord is incredibly compassionate and gracious, and the lyrics of this song remind us of that. Now, for this to become our song, we need to consider what this actually says, because I I was also curious what makes a good cover song. And I read, and, you know, since you're not going to come up, you can come up with an original tune to the lyrics. That's one possibility. Um, But all of the articles that were suggesting, I I don't think they were written for me. They were written for people who actually were planning on recording something. They all said, "You you need to own it. It needs to speak to your heart. When you're speaking, it needs to be your own. And so as we look at this, one of the things that I think that we, we can break this song down in, in a couple of different ways, but I, I, I think that we're going to look at it in two ways because I see two primary pillars uh, that speak to us that become foundations for flourishing, regardless of the circumstances that we find in this life. And in fact, that's sort of what David is, is pointing out to us, uh, not as an instruction, Uh, For other people, like he was a a lecturer or a professor at a college. But as one who is in constant need of reminding himself, even as you and I are in constant need of reminding ourselves of who God is and what God has done and what he has promised for those who belong to him. And we need to be reminded of the Lord's goodness. The first thing that I think that we, we see that David does here and that we need to learn from is we need to remember God's past deliverances. That's what the first part of this psalm is about. David is thinking back to past situations. At some point or points in his life, he was, had undergone some significant difficulties. Now, in this psalm, he's not specific about what those are, and commentators either acknowledge that he's either not specific or they say that it could fit with any number of circumstances. It may have been something that is recorded for us because he had many difficulties that we see recorded in First and Second Samuel or in Chronicles. He may be thinking back to a time or several times in his past when, uh, of things that are recorded for us in the Scriptures, the difficulties he had either growing up or when he assumed the, uh, was anointed to become king or even after he had become the king. It's also quite possible that his life had difficulties that are not recorded for us. In fact, it's quite likely we only have a snapshot, even though we have as much information as we do about him, it's only a snapshot, and life is filled with difficulties. That's one of the things that this psalm reminds us. And so we don't know what the specifics are, but in fact, we're probably better off not knowing what the specifics are because being general, being vague, enables us to enter into the psalm rather than having to find ourselves in similar situations with him. What David does use is language that helps us to understand. He uses two metaphors. He says that he's found himself in the pit of destruction. Let me, I'll just go back and, and I'll uh, read uh, what he says here in verse 2. The Lord drew me out from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. And we have the two metaphors that are used there that often probably don't go together, but it's an indication that, that's, that they are metaphors. He drew him out of the the pit of destruction, which probably suggests that David had, uh, in those circumstances that he's thinking about, he was feeling fear. He was perhaps fearing for his very life, the whole idea of the the pit of destruction. He was someplace that he wasn't able to get out. He was in it deep, and there was some peril, at least uh, as uh, he saw it, something that made him incredibly anxious. And the miry bog reminds us that sometimes life is messy. And in this situation, the metaphor may suggest to him that he felt helpless in the situation. There wasn't anything he could do. You think about a, a miry bog or a mud pit. If you've ever, you know, been in a situation where the mud is deep and you find yourself sinking In fact, sometimes when you find yourself in that situation, when you move around, the more you struggle to try to free yourself, the more it seems like you sink in deeper. And that may be what David is describing from his past situation as well, that he was in a situation where not only was it messy, but each time he thought that he would find a way out, each time he tried to help himself, it just seemed to get worse. He was more stuck in a situation, and therefore he was helpless and would have been hopeless except for the deliverance of God. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock and making my steps sure. He's remembering the circumstances that he was in, and every one of us can identify with that. We have difficulties in our lives. Sometimes we are fearful, maybe not for our life, but for an aspect of our life that might be dying. Could be a relationship, could be a job, could be your retirement account, it could be, you know, health, it could be any any number of things. But there the future looks quite frightening. And we know that life is messy in any number of, of ways. And yet David is reminding himself that the Lord was faithful and pulled him up out of that pit. And the prescription that he seems to give at the beginning of this psalm that he's giving for everybody, he he begins with. I waited patiently for the Lord, he inclined to me and heard my cry. And so the instruction here seems to be that when we find ourselves in those situations, we need to be waiting patiently. Now, in one sense it's a good piece of advice. And another sense, if you are anything like me, when you find yourselves in those circumstances. I really don't want to hear that. Here's the problem. I feel like I'm going to die. Well, just wait patiently. (laughs) And I get this idea, kind of like I'm supposed to wait when I go to the doctor's office. You know, just kind of sit back, the doctor's out, or do whatever the doctors do. Those of you who are doctors, I don't know what you do. I just... (laughs) And, you know... Throw a few magazines, try to ignore the soap operas or the view while it 's on in the background i mean that 's uh unless you love the view that 's your business um, but uh, just kind of wait you know your time will come, and then there you go and that 's the mental picture that I get, and I think it's the mental picture that many people have when they hear this you know it's it 's a beautiful song. I waited patiently and uh you know, we'd long to be able to have that kind of peace and just kind of sit there. Although the irony is if the mental images of the doctor's office, I don't know anybody who sits there patiently and not anxious. I mean, it's like foot tapping and whatever. And, you know, if you didn't have anxiety when you went in, you start having it after about a 45 minutes after your appointment was supposed to be. And so and so maybe that is a good illustration, but it it doesn't seem – I mean – it's beautiful poetry, but it's not our life experience. And so we look at that and we wonder does it really connect with difficulty? When we're in difficulties, this idea, oh, just wait patiently. And then you may find some encouragement from New Testament scholar Derek Kidner, who says that the word patiently is too placid for the intensity of these opening words. In other words, the, the patiently, it's not a wrong translation, but our, our idea of what he means here of, about being patient is not what is in view here. Another scholar, uh, uh, Old Testament scholar, I'm sorry, Derek Kinner as an Old Testament scholar. Uh, another scholar says this, the Hebrew words used for wait and patiently in verse 1, so there's two distinct words there, they, they have the same root, kava. and this is the only time, that these two words are used together in the Old Testament as if to emphasize the importance of this text. The implication, according to this commentator, is this. The implication is to wait patiently involves hope, anticipation, and deliverance. In other words, you're not just sitting there just kind of mind, but there is something that we are instructed to do while we're waiting patiently, which is To remind ourselves of hope, which is what David is doing here. And in in his present circumstances, he's reminding himself of what God has done in the past. There is an anticipation of deliverance. But even with that, when you're reminding of those things, you're reminded of the circumstances you're in. And I think we get a better sense of what it means to wait patiently by what David says after this. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. See, in in the midst of his patience, it's not the doctor's office. Now, maybe some of you cry while you're waiting for the doctor's office. I don't know. But the cry here is probably not one of just tears of sadness, although it may be when he's overwhelmed. He may, at circumstances, just cave and just doesn't have any more, and and tears may flow. More likely, though, is he heard my cry, is that what David is essentially saying is, help, and not just one time. I mean, he is turning his attention to the Lord. He's crying out to God. He is loud. He is intense with what he is saying, just like every one of us would be when we find ourselves in a situation where we feel like we are stuck and we are helpless and we are in the miry bog. When we find that our lives are threatened, we cry out to somebody who is near, somebody who may be able to deliver us. And David says, in these circumstances of life, in these past, when life was handing him challenges. He cried out, and so there was a loud intensity of that. It's not sitting back placidly, using Kidner's word. It's a matter of turning our attention to God, being aware. It, it doesn't suggest that you, you know, just accept it, just embrace it, and, and just wait. The whole issue of waiting patiently here is not our posture, but it's our experience, And the reason that we must be patient is because God's time is not our time. And in the midst of our circumstances, our time is not God's time. My time is yesterday. But what I forget too often, or even when I remember, I don't appreciate, I don't even like, is that very often in the midst of the circumstances, regardless of the reasons that I am in these situations, regardless of the reason David was in the situation in the past, God is doing something that I'm not aware of. And delivering me yesterday, or even right at this moment, may not actually be in my best interest, or the best interest of the people who are around me, or in some way that I will not be able to recognize the best for the world. As God works all things together for good, For those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. It's not just about me. It's about what God is doing for others through me and around me and around the world. And so we wait patiently but assured that God delivers. Turning our attention to God but patience is not a lack of intensity. Patience is just the recognition, a reminding of ourselves that God is working these things out. And we are called to remind ourselves of our own experience and times when God has brought us out of the pit of destruction, brought us out of the miry muck and planted us on firm ground. It may be that some of us would benefit from journaling. Maybe some of you already do. And writing these things down if you're prone to forget. There's something that is incredibly powerful about going back and and remembering and reading of times where you've seen God answer your prayers. And God has delivered you from certain things that seem threatening. At a time when you are, you don't even have to be in uncertain circumstances. It's, It's encouraging. But particularly when you're facing uncertain circumstances, to go back and read how God has delivered you in the past how he has answered your prayers in the past. It's an incredibly encouraging thing. And so if that's not a discipline you have, it may be one that you find beneficial. Now, one thing that I would also suggest, it's really not part of the text, but just since I'm already making the suggestion that you avoid doing one thing that I often do. Um, you know, there's the, the metaphorical truth of we're supposed to look at the Old Testament scripture and, and see that we are Israel. We always, as Americans, like to make ourselves the hero, but we are the people of Israel. What I tend to do is Remember that God has delivered me in the past, just like Israel. But then I think, so, Lord, have you brought me here to die? Is that the whole point? You saved me from these past things so that, you know, you can do me in now. This is a confession, not a suggestion that you embrace this. Um, The whole point of remembering is not just about our circumstances, but remembering the character, the nature of our God, and being reminded of God's past deliverances, is one of the foundational pillars of a life flourishing in a world that is chaotic and sometimes feels very cruel. The second pillar that goes along with it is not only reminding ourselves of the way that God has delivered us in the past, but to remind ourselves uh, of God's promises for deliverance. So God has already acted in our lives in, in certain ways, but He's acted consistent with his own principles. He's acted consistent with his own promises. And those are the things that we cling to. The the experiential that we remember is is beneficial. It is a foundation for our heartening. But the true foundation is the character of God and and his promises. And and David seems to remember, to know that, because he, he goes through this whole thing, and then he comes to his present circumstance, so David is not just writing about, yeah, I remember back when I was having difficulties and God has delivered me. That's the beginning of the psalm. But the, the purpose of the psalm, the, the reason for his writing is apparently he's found himself in difficulty yet again. And so he's going through the process of reminding himself first, and then he's now trying to remind himself so that he would have his hope, that he would have the assurance that God would deliver in accordance with his promises. And, and even after he acknowledges this, he, he says uh, this in verse 11, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. And so David's hope is not just on God's record in the past. And David's hope is not even on his ability to earn or warrant being delivered uh, from the circumstances it's in, as, as we'll see in a moment. David's hope is in the character of God remembering what God is like, remembering what God has promised and because of that he has in the midst of the circumstances that he still finds himself in he has this assurance that the Lord Lord you you will not restrain you not you won't hold back your mercy, your steadfast love and, and your faithfulness is going to preserve me is going to deliver me your purpose, in me and through me and for me, will be done. I have this great confidence. And so he lays that out. Now, he does tell us in this passage, in the next verse, some of the reasons for his present angst. In verse 12, he says this. For evils have encompassed me beyond number, and my iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs on my head. My heart fails me. And so we get a sense of what he's feeling in the midst of his anguish. This guy who's waiting patiently, who has waited patiently for the Lord, his heart is failing. And that itself should enable us to identify with this. This is not just kind of a a happy song. This is somebody who is going through a process, making sense, crying out for deliverance from the circumstance that he is in now, and there are two reasons that he lists for the circumstances that he's experiencing. One is the evil that's all around him, and the other is the sin that's within him. And these are pretty much the two universal reasons for, uh, for, for difficulty. Now, there are other circumstances as well, and it's important, particularly at this time, that, that I say that. There are other circumstances that people experience hardship and difficulty that has nothing to do with either evil or with sin. And those just happen to be circumstances in life, living in, in this world. Uh, and just the powers and other things in this world. We, we're seeing an example of that as you turn on the news this weekend, where people have had their homes totally wiped out throughout Florida uh, because of Hurricane Ian. And this is not the Lord's judgment, although some people are going to go and claim that, you know, every person that happened to be in the wake of that path must have done, you know. We're all sinners. This is just living in a world. It's perhaps a part of living in a broken world, and, and yet this is also the way that God had created things, the, you know, hurricanes, whatever, this is the, the power of God. That's not indication of evil, and it's not necessarily because of, of sin. And so if you find yourself in a situation like that, that are just part of a world that is broken, and things that are falling apart, uh, it's not God's judgment on you. It's just the common difficulties that we have. But that doesn't seem to be the situation for David. David's not saying, yeah, well, these things happen. Not in this situation. He's saying there's two reasons. There's evil. There's people who are evil and they're bent to get him. And then there's the sin in his own heart. And these things are not necessarily unrelated. They are incidental. They, you know, sometimes it's just people who are evil, and therefore people become a victim to the evil in the hearts of other people. Sometimes our sin has consequences to it. And sometimes our sin ticks people off and drinks the evil out of them, and they get angry, and, and the cause. And, so, and that seems to be the case, of what David is talking about here. And if we look at his history through uh, what's recorded for him, it's not the only time. And David may have been a man after God's own heart, but boy, was he a, a mess, a double-minded mess. I love to study him, and I hate it at the same time. I love to study him because I feel, in the, yeah, okay, well, you can be a man after God's own heart, but, yeah, I see too much of myself as a double-minded mess. And it's particularly confusing if you think about what David said in the verses that we, and I just skipped over, but we'll get back to in a moment, when he's talking about his responses. If you back up to what he had said in, in um, really, uh, verses um, 8 through 10. Let me just read this. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and of your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. And so David is saying in part as the pattern of his life in view of the mercies that God has shown him before because he's experienced the love of God, he now has delights to do what God wants. He recognizes God's ways are the right ways. God's ways bring more joy to our lives and the lives of the people who are around. And he has testified, essentially evangelized. He's told people, declared, this is what God has done for me. Look what God is like, and look what God has done. He says, I have not held that back. And so you got a guy who says, yeah, what I want to do is I want to live my life in accordance with your way, and I want to tell other people about you. I mean, who do, you know, what an incredible example for us. What, what a pattern that we ought to follow in this. And yet he says, but here's the problem. My sin... Is, has overtaken me. My sin is, I've got more sin than hairs on my head, which I know for some of us is worse than others, but um, I have no idea what the redemptive value is of, of balding, but that's um, according to this. But I think it's safe to say, this is a pattern to say our sins are many, more than we can count. And, they're there, and sometimes because they're there, they overtake us. In other words, they infect our mind. They affect the way that we make decisions and the things that we do. They impact the people who are around us, and then we find ourselves in circumstances that we wish we were not in, and that's what David seems to say. And yet you have this incredible incongruity. I delight in doing your will, and I tell everybody all about you, and yet I'm a spiritual mess because I have so much sin I can't even count it and it's causing havoc in my life and the life of the people around. And boy, do I resonate with that. And it's not only me and it's not only David, but the Apostle Paul even said as part of his sanctification process is I don't do what I want to do and I do the things I don't want to do. And I think it's a, a Twitter way of Expressing the experience that is common to every one of us, because one of the characteristics of the person who has experienced the mercy of God and the deliverance of God and, and, and the love of God is to love God. and to love God, we demonstrate our love for Him by walking in His ways. and when we walk in His ways, when we delight to do His will, we find there is delight because His way is the way that is supposed to be. And yet even as we set that as the pattern, and that's characteristic of anyone who is a, belongs to God, it should be that they want to do and delight in doing the will of God. If you have no interest in doing what God wants you to do, then I think it's a, sufficient, it's a sufficient reason to wonder, am I really part of God's family? I mean, if you don't even care. But for those who are part of the family, it's important to recognize this experience because it may be true of you and you may not know that this is common to everybody. Even those who have been saved, even those who enjoy obeying and living out God's, uh, God's way, we still struggle, fail, and sin sometimes seems to reign in our mind, in our lives, at least for a time. Martin Luther had a, embraced a Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator, which means we are simultaneously sinners, the peccator, and justus, just, justified, or righteous. Those who are part of God's family, we have been declared, pardoned from our sin. It's no longer God going to count it against us. But the reality of sin still exists, and we need to be aware of that. And it's, I think it's telling just how aware David was of his sin. He just said, yeah, sin, I made a mistake, You know, I have this temptation. I have this continuing temptation. There may be temptations that were stronger than others, but he says, the amount of sin that's in my life, I I don't even, I, I can't even count it. But an awareness of sin actually enables us to grow in God's grace because it brings humility. It shows us our need. It prompts us to cry out to God who alone can deliver us from sin and the circumstances that our sin puts us in. And so David is giving us a great example here of an honest assessment which brings humility. And in his humility, he's crying out to God. But he's crying out to God with incredible assurance because his hope is not rooted in In his performance or promises of better behavior in the future, his hope is rooted in the character and the promise of God, and particularly his hope is rooted for him, one who was to come, who would also cover his song. For us, one who has already covered this song, and that person is Jesus. A few weeks ago when we were studying Hebrews chapter 10, You may remember that the author of the book of Hebrews attributes verses 6 through 8 to Jesus in such a way as if Jesus himself had spoken those words.
1: And these words,
0: that the writer of Hebrews says, and this is the hope that all of us have, and the reason that I think it's a wonderful preparation for the table. David writes, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of Jesus, in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll, the book is written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh, my God, your law is within my heart. Now, just to touch on it, because we need to be reminded, and some of you may not have been here, it may be confusing when it says here, David writing, you know, he's the second king of Israel. God's law is still in effect. There is a distinction between the the king and, and, and the priesthood here, and the sacrificial system was still being practiced as it was put in place to be done. And he says, in sacrifice and offering, you have no delight. Okay, that might be a surprise, but that's not so much confusing. But burnt offerings you have not required? Well, the whole sacrificial system was implemented by God and was being practiced more or less at different times, in accordance with the way that God had done it. But what David is touching on here, and what we need to understand is, God never put the system in place as as a substitute for living in fellowship and and living the way that he called us to live. He put it in place in part so that we would be reminded of just how horrible our sin is. We would have a, a vivid reminder and then we would recognize his mercy, and that mercy should prompt us to live the way that we are to live, not only toward God but toward other people. And yet, people get so accustomed to offering the sacrifices, in part because they were still sinners, just like you and I. But they got so used to that they didn't even think much about it up. Oh, here's the penalty. I remember when I, I was a kid, we were driving uh, across the Pennsylvania um, on the turnpike, and they had just started posting the, the fines. If you're 5 miles over, 10 miles an hour over, this is what you pay, and whatever. And for whatever the reason, I, this stuck with me. My father made the comment, I guess they're telling you, you just have to look at how much you can afford, um, you know, to pay. I can afford 30 miles over uh, this today. I'm in a hurry. I mean, that's... And I've driven that way for a whole life. No, um, but... Um, <laughs> um, But the people of Israel had become like that. They were no longer horrified by the reality of their sin and what it was doing to them and what it was doing to the world around them. They just thought, ah, I did this, here's the price. And they became hardened to the reality of their sin, which just increased the fruitfulness of the evil. And so the Lord says, look, I don't delight in this. I didn't put this in here because I wanted you to bring animal sacrifices to me. And when he's saying, look, I don't require this, he required it, not because this was the ultimate. What he requires is this, be holy as God is holy. And because you're not, because I'm not, and David's not, and nobody from Israel was, there's a penalty, and God, in his mercy, said we're going to do a sacrificial system, in part so that you can pay, there's, you, know, you know there's a cost, and also because it's a foreshadowing of the sacrifice that's going to be offered once for all, and that will be my son, who will be the spotless lamb, who will be crucified once and for all. And so Jesus has covered this song beautifully and perfectly. And David's hope and our hope is in the fact that he has covered the song by laying down his life. He delighted in doing God's will. And what was God's will? God's will was to crush him for our iniquities and to raise him again to life so that you and I can be restored in fellowship to God and have hope and a future. We look at our lives and we look at the psalm and we're reminded that the last words that John records of Jesus in his gospel or these. in this world you can have all sorts of troubles I think most of us can identify with that but then he adds this but behold look watch think about meditate remember remind yourself you'll have many troubles but I have overcome this world and we remind ourselves of that and we turn our attention to him regardless of the circumstances we're in. We see the character of God, that delivers a people while they were in rebellion against him. And he provided in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And when we remember that, we can have the confidence, we can sing this song, both the beginning, remembering of the past, how God's delivered with the assurance of the future of the deliverance that we're going to have from our circumstances and even from our sin. And like David, we can finish our song as he does. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is our Lord. As for me, I'm poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. So don't delay, my God. Father, we pray that you would speak this to us, that we would hear you singing in our hearts, and that this song would become our song, for you have given us a new song. Let us sing it to ourselves in times of need. Let us sing it in times of celebration. Let us sing it to one another. But above all, let us hear you sing, for you have recorded it, so that we may know that we may have hope, even assurance. Lord, we put our trust in you. Give us peace, regardless of what we're facing. This I pray in Christ, the perfect sacrifice. Amen.